Here's an education point and a takeaway for your listeners. If you have a business, if you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, or you have an existing business and you're generating profit, it's not an either or situation where you have a business or you invest in real estate. The education I got from going through that process to me was more valuable than anything out of university. I actually paid $35,000 for some pieces of advice. This is one of them. You got to actually digest it and sit back and think about it. Every business has to. But my cousin and I made a decision to essentially create what we would call the Amazon.com of the golf club industry. And I believe this was supposed to be the major turning point in my life. My name is Marco Santarelli. I'm the founder and CEO of Norada Real Estate Investments. I am 51. I'm located here in Southern California in Orange County. However, we operate nationwide. So we are a nationwide provider of turnkey cash flowing rental properties. We operate in about 25 different markets, mostly in the Midwest and the Southeast of the US. We help people build their real estate portfolios so they can create wealth and passive income through real estate so they can be on the road to financial freedom and we help them to achieve those financial freedom goals. I started this business back in 2004. It kind of fell on my lap, but at the same time, I identified a need out there where investors were needing and looking for help. And I thought being an entrepreneur, this is a great opportunity for me to start a business around what I love and my passion for real estate and investing and help other people while I'm helping myself. And so here we are today, 16 years later, we have a thriving, successful business and we're helping literally hundreds upon hundreds of people. What are you doing in general like, to make money as this real estate company? I heard turnkey rental properties, and maybe not everyone who's listening understands all that concepts, but I guess just in general, real estate can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, those are two great questions. So let's define what turnkey rental properties are or turnkey real estate investing is in general, because this is not a concept or a term that is defined within the industry. People kick the term around a lot, and they talk about turnkey this and turnkey that. At the end of the day, there's no formal definition. What I did back in 2003, 2004, and 2005 is I marketed the crap out of that term. And so today, everybody uses it frequently. If you go online, you will always find the word turnkey associated with real estate in some way, shape, or form. And people still to this day misuse it. But after all this time, there's really no formal definition. Our definition of a turnkey real estate investment is an investment property that has positive cash flow, is in a good market, a good neighborhood, it's in new or like new condition, it's tenant occupied, cash flow positive, professionally managed by full service professional management. That is the baseline or the foundation. That's what you fundamentally have to have in order to call an investment property a rental of any kind, whether it's a single family duplex or fourplex, a turnkey rental. That's the way we define it. Other people define it a little differently and they're much more lax on it. And so they'll throw something at you that is what I would just simply call, hey, it's rent ready, but it's not really turnkey because it still has issues or deferred maintenance, or maybe it's in a bad neighborhood or the hood. I don't consider that turnkey. So that was the answer to your first question. Now I apologize. <laughs> I forgot your second question. No, I think that helped enough. So is that basically what you do? Do you end up buying distressed properties? You buy a single family house, right? That might be distressed. You'll fix it up, make sure there's a tenant in there and make sure there's a management company managing it. And then you'll sell that property to a potential investor. Is that how you make money? The short answer to that question is yes. However, for clarification purposes, and now I actually do remember your question, is really the business model. 
our company here based in California, Norada Real Estate Investments, is essentially a real estate brokerage. And just like any other traditional real estate brokerage, we generate our revenue through the quote unquote commission or what you might call the sales fee or the marketing fee from the close of the transaction, the sale of a property. So we actually don't get compensated and we don't earn our income or our revenue until there is actually a transaction that is completed successfully. We don't sell anything else. We give a lot of free content and information and downloadable reports and guides and the free book that's coming out and on and on the list goes, you know, even our podcast. We do a lot of free, 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 free in an effort to educate the people that we work with on how to properly invest and avoid making mistakes. But at the end of that train, if you will, is the ultimate decision of our clients to invest in real estate. And when they do close escrow on the purchases of those properties, that's the only time where we earn our revenue, our income. And that's essentially the quote unquote commission on the sale of that property. Just to clarify that one point as well, we're not actually acquiring the distressed properties when they are refurbished or renovated properties. We're not the ones acquiring them and fixing them up. We partner in each of our local markets with full service professional rehabbers. So these are people or companies that actually go out, find that distressed inventory, assuming they're not new home builders. They find the distressed inventory, they fix it up, and then they hand it over to us as a turnkey investment, as a turnkey rental. And then that's the point where we put it up on our website and we put it in our inventory and make it available to our investor clients. But we're not actually fixing them ourselves. We hire the people or we bring those people in. And what's the website? So if someone wanted to check it out now while they're listening to this interview, what's the website where you have those up? So the mothership website, if you will, is noradarealestate.com. Some people don't know how to spell that. It's N-O-R-A-D-A, Norada, Norada, however you want to pronounce it, but noradarealestate.com. What's Norada mean? Small little story to that question. I don't know what it means and it probably doesn't mean anything, but there's an interesting story to that for your listeners who are business-minded and entrepreneurs. So many, many, many years ago, my best friend and I started a small business that had nothing to do with real estate. We were in the publishing space and we visited a company that they're not in the US, they're actually in Canada. We met with the two founders of the company. Their company was called, at that time, Norada Corp. I asked them the exact same question, and it's surprising to me how many people actually ask me that same question. What does Norada mean? Because I don't know if there's just a curiosity to it or if there's something psychological. But I asked the same question. What is Norada? What does it mean? He said, well, when we founded this company, we needed a name. We didn't know what to name it, but we wanted something strong and unique. And so they came up with a list of 100 potential names. They just brainstormed a bunch of names that they could brand and were unique. Of the list of 100, submitted that list to a psychological evaluation company. Now, I don't know who this company is, but they basically said, let us send this in for a test and have these names tested psychologically and find out which ones are the most psychologically impactful names. Of the 100 names that they came up with, Norada or Norada, came out at the top of that list as the most psychologically impactful name. And so hearing that little fact, that little tidbit, I filed it in the back of my head because I thought it was so interesting that many, many years later, when I actually needed a name for the business, I just pulled it out of my memory banks and I said, yep, this is probably what I'm going to use. And then I'll just tack on real estate investments right after it. Well, I think maybe because it's like easy to read and it's a word people have never seen and you and I can easily pronounce it, whether you're saying it Narada or Narada or whatever. Maybe that's part of the reason me thinking it's like if you had a lot of random letters that was a, not a real word, it might be hard to actually say, but it seems like this kind of flows off the tongue. So 
That's actually interesting. I guess that's a tidbit already for anyone who's thinking about a company name that's maybe looking up a similar service where they can look up psychologically. They come up with 10 or 20 different business names and see which actually work best because at least you went with the flow with that and you didn't name it something else that people might have seemed off-putting. And I guess you're already using that research that they actually already paid for, right? Yeah. For all the entrepreneurs listening to this, usually when you come up with a name for a new business or a company, you come up with a bunch of things that are pretty low-hanging fruit and obvious names. And when you look up the domain name online and you go to GoDaddy or wherever you go, often you're going to find that those domain names are taken because the common words, regardless of whether you're stringing two, three, or four of them together, often are unavailable or there's already another company out there that is using that name. And so when you can come up with something that is unique and brandable, you know, whether it's Geico, or Coca-Cola, Morata, or whatever it is, when you have a name that has not been used before and it flows and rolls off the tongue, now you can trademark it, you could brand it, you can register the URL or the domain name for it, and it's more workable. So I think we're at a point today where so many domain names have been just gobbled up that you have to find something that is unique and memorable. No, absolutely. Getting back to your real estate and you clarifying it. Thank you. I think you did a fantastic job of actually just making it as simple as you can. When I said for real estate, there's so many different ways you can make money within real estate. And I had to clarify, you were saying you just get money through the broker's commission, but is that only for properties like in California? Because usually licenses are kind of state by state. And I know you got properties kind of all across the US on your actual website here. Yeah, so real estate brokerages are regulated at the state level, but all brokerages across the U.S. can do business with each other on a broker-to-broker -broker relationship. So as long as you're operating between brokerages, between states, then there's no issue because it's just a broker-to-broker -broker referral or a broker-to-broker -broker transaction. But yes, it is regulated at the state level, and so just be mindful of that. Let's talk about finding freelance talent for your business or project. Sometimes a business needs to quickly pivot in order to meet a goal or maybe an unexpected obstacle occurs, making it impossible to meet your deadline with the size of your team. Where do you go to find that talent? How much will it cost? How can you be certain they'll even deliver? Finding the right freelancer can be time consuming, frustrating, and expensive. Fiverr's platform helps businesses moving with a network of trusted freelance talent. I've used Fiverr before, and one of the best things about it is how quick turnaround is to actually get a project done. Whether you're launching your first business, scaling your current business, or in need of extra support to complete a project, Fiverr is here to help you evolve, adapt, and grow. Fiverr connects businesses with freelancers who offer hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, and more. Find out what you're looking for instantly. Search by service, deadline, price, reviews, and more. You'll know exactly what you're paying for upfront. No negotiation needed and is 24-7 customer service. So check out Fiverr today and receive 10% off at your first order by using code MILLIONAIRE. It's so easy. Find all the digital services you need in one place at fiverr.com and use code MILLIONAIRE. Again, that's fiverr.com, code MILLIONAIRE. You did a good job clarifying of like us understanding how you actually make revenue. So is this basically in general, how you made all your revenue? I mean, I imagine if we're going to reel it back to kind of how you got started within this real estate realm, but just within the last few years, or I guess what percentage of your revenue is through this? And do you mind letting us know how much you actually generated in 2019? Yeah. Mistakenly, I'm going to say that is the only source of revenue in the business. And I say mistakenly because I know I've left a lot of opportunity and money on the table not having other programs like an online training program 
or a group coaching program, or a mastermind program, or a soon-to-be-released, free-by-the-way, book. But these four things I just mentioned are all on the product roadmap for this year. So these are all things that I am working on that will be released this year. And those will be also revenue generators. But to date, mistakenly, the only revenue source has been the marketing fees from the sale of property. So that is the only source. So to answer your question, to give you kind of a snapshot, I'll give you a 2018 snapshot because I have it fresh in front of me. So we were actually ranked on the Inc. 5000, Inc. Magazine's 5000 list of the fastest growing privately held companies in the U.S. in 2019 for 2018, and we were ranked 925. So at the time, we had 10 full-time staff, including myself. We operated in 22 markets. We had a $44.6 million in closed real estate transactions. Now, keep in mind, none of this is in California where we're based or New York or any of the expensive markets. Real estate doesn't make sense, and we can talk about that later if you're interested. We're focused on the Midwest and the Southeast. So when you do the math, the median price of the properties that our clients purchase are right around the $120,000 mark. So for $120,000, you're getting a three-bedroom home in a good neighborhood, like a B-plus class neighborhood. $44.6 million in closed real estate deals translates to roughly about 500 transactions over the course of that year. And so that's the kind of volume that we're doing. Oh, that's amazing like that. And is that just from you building up through your podcast or through other people through referrals over these last 16 years? Well, the way people find this comes from different sources. A lot of it is just organic traffic online. You know, having started the business 16 years ago, we have a pretty good footprint on the internet. So when you type in search terms such as real estate investing or turnkey real estate or investment real estate for sale or Jacksonville, Florida investment properties, stuff like that, we come up on the first page of Google almost all the time. And so we get a fair amount of organic traffic and probably a third of our business comes in organically. Another third or so is coming in through the podcast. But keep in mind, I started the podcast almost five years ago. So again, you know, we've got a pretty good following and there's a lot of people who listen to it and have educated themselves and become part of our tribe. So now they're coming in through that channel, if you will. And then the other third or whatever's left over, those are just coming from various source online forums, print advertising, email newsletters that go out, particularly our own, because over the years we've built up a database of subscribers. And these are people that want our weekly newsletter. And we put out a good article or a podcast episode in that newsletter, as well as featured properties and sometimes additional content and information. So those are people who are maybe just only in contact with us through that newsletter. And so when they see properties on there or they just get it and it's a reminder that, hey, I need to invest in real estate or I need to purchase my next rental property, then they contact us. But regardless of how they come in, regardless of what funnel or channel they come in to us, ultimately they're going to be talking to one of my team, my investment counselors, and they're going to have a strategy session. And that strategy session might be one or two phone conversations just to map out exactly what they're trying to do. And that's the beginning of the process. So from there, it just goes on to additional conversations and emails to identify where they're going to invest and what they're investing in. That's how we generate that flow. They're coming in through the podcast, organic traffic, referrals. I forgot to mention that, referrals. There's a good number of referrals and just other online sources. 
I guess when you're even saying Googling turnkey real estate or whatever, that you're usually in the top four or five. I'm looking at here for some of those terms that you're saying. Is that like SEO that you've been doing or have you been around on long enough that you say you've been doing it 16 years that you kind of naturally float up there or what proactive things are you doing? Because the podcast is obviously proactive because you have to keep putting out episodes and that's what you're doing. But I'm just wondering, it seems like you've got a good flow of investors wanting, I guess, coming to your website or finding your information if you're doing this many transactions. So I'm just wondering, I'm thinking from afar, is like even anyone getting started, how can they even get a small following at first? Because it seems like you've got a large one here. Well, you have to do both as a business owner, regardless of whether you're starting a new business or you have an existing business and you want to have a better presence online, you have to be focused on SEO all the time. And SEO is not trickery. It's not black hat or gray hat. You have to stay white hat. And that all that means is that you are putting out content on a regular and consistent basis. And that content has to be good content. There has to be value. It has to provide value and education for the people who are finding it and reading it. Otherwise, it's a waste of their time. And Google's not stupid. They know when people pull up your content, read your content, stay on your site and how long they stay. And so you got to keep in mind that when you're putting content out there, you want people to not only consume it, but maybe comment on it or share it, share it on social media, or more importantly, link back to it. When people organically, naturally link to your content because it is that good, then it's like a vote. Google looks at that and says, hey, someone voted for your content because they were willing to link back to it from their article or from their resources and say, hey, check this guy out or check these people out because this content's important. That happens organically when you put out good content on a consistent and regular basis. You can't game the system, which is all of what you know the black and gray hat trickery is all about. Now that used to work long ago, many, many years ago, but it doesn't work anymore today. You've got some good blog articles here. I can tell, like, I understand a little bit about SEO, but as far as you don't have just these dinky 300 word blog posts, like you're kind of going in depth in each market and I can see why it's kind of working. It seems like, have you taken a lot of time to try to understand that? And are you the one doing it or someone else on your staff doing it? Well, I used to do it. I spent time trying to learn it and study it, but it is constantly changing and it's a job in and of itself. So you can start doing it yourself, but at some point in time, you're going to have to have a marketing person, someone who understands how to create content and understands SEO and is able to put together the stuff for you and put it on social media and on your blog and wherever else you're posting. You could do it, but is that really what you want to spend your whole day doing or your week? That is really not what your highest and best use is as a business owner or an entrepreneur. You should be focused on other things. But I mean, at least even getting started, like you said, you did it at first, right? Well, it's because I was a one-man show. Of course, I had to do it myself. But all of us are, <laughs> right? And I mean, usually when we're getting started, that's a lot of the people listening now. So I think in the long term, it's like, still, I touch the podcast. I do some of the last things that, whether it's the intros or whatever, putting sponsors in, it's like, I understand I can't keep doing that long term. But, you know, if you do it on a process basis and make sure that you understand that too, I think if you wouldn't have done it in the beginning, then now you understand the value of it. And maybe you train that next person. But now it's starting to make sense to me how you're able to get all these people interested in these properties. So yeah, I think we've done a good broad point view. You talked about, I guess, like 2018. So do you still have 10 people on staff and are you still doing the same amount of revenue like this past year and for the upcoming year? We're down to nine. One person moved on. Does that mean they were fired? No, he was a part-time assistant. And what I originally hired him to do, we were overlapping and duplicating with other people in the company. So there was really no point keeping him. I couldn't keep him busy enough. So I just let him go. But we both knew that was coming because he just wasn't busy. I wasn't giving him enough work. 
in terms of volume, we're actually on track to do better than the previous two years. So now here's the big variable. Uh, what's happening with this whole coronavirus thing? I'm not sure yet how that's going to impact the economy and people's confidence, consumer confidence and investors confidence in investing in anything, whether it be the equities market or real estate or otherwise. I'm already seeing some of the impact from it, just from the comments that people are saying. But up until the coronavirus fiasco or scare, which the media, I don't believe is helping in any way, I think they're kind of adding fuel to the fire. We were on pace to actually break all records. In fact, February was our record month across the board ever. So there's been a bit of a pullback. Yeah. So we'll see how it plays out. But I think even anyone who's listening, even if you're not interested in real estate, we've already pulled some things. Like, again, that's why I like having a variety of entrepreneurs on. Like I love talking about real estate or understanding it. I used to read books about it all the time, but we still already learned multiple things about really, we haven't even touched really real estate related topics, if you will, what you've done to get to this point. So how about we go back to actually when you started this? You're saying it's been around for 16 years. Should we just start when you started the real estate company, Narada? We can start wherever you want. <laughs> well, you tell me. I mean, anyone who's listening, what do you think? Because I mean, I've got your profile up here. I'm just trying to figure out with the given time, like what you think would be most useful for everybody. You know better than me. I guess I'll just quickly comment on you know my youth, which will segue to how I started the business. Is that really what you're after? Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. You're in California again today, but you're actually born and raised in Canada? Yeah, I grew up in Calgary. A good part of my family lives in Calgary and Toronto. But yeah, that was home. You know, just to kind of touch on how I fell on this path or how I chose this path of entrepreneurship and real estate, because I would assume most of your listeners are business owners and entrepreneurs. Is that true? Yeah, that's definitely correct. I think all of us too, at some point, want to have enough income where you can invest in either properties or other things. So I think more from the entrepreneur mindset is what we're angling here. Yeah. When we talk about creating wealth and being financially free and having business and all that stuff, I mean, that's a whole podcast and episode in and of itself because there's so much you can talk about there. But these things all tie together. And I just knew at a very young age that I wanted to be wealthy. And I actually made it my life's mission at the time without stating it. I made it my life's mission to learn anything and everything I could about wealth and money. Back in my early teens, I began to study business, real estate, and personal development. I was buying the books and the binders and listening to the programs to help educate me at an early age because I just knew that that was the path I wanted to get on. And I didn't know how I was going to do that or when I was going to do that or what it would look like, but I just knew that I wanted to be independent, a business person. I was entrepreneurial. I wanted to create wealth, and I was studying it. So I did go to university and I felt that that was a complete waste of four and a half years because I studied criminology. I thought I wanted to be a police officer because everybody told me it paid well, but they had this mindset of being an employee. Like it was a J-O-B mindset. It wasn't an entrepreneurial or business mindset, but I had this dream of financial freedom and time freedom. And that was much larger than anything I could ever get from university. When I turned 18, I was old enough to qualify for mortgage financing. And that's when I bought my first rental property. So I bought that first rental property, I fixed it up, I leased it, and I managed it myself. There was no internet back then. It was really sticking a sign on the lawn and an ad in the newspaper, and that's really how you leased your property. And what year was this? That was... 92 is when you graduated. Yeah, should have been around 1988. 
the point of that first rental at that early age was the education I got from going through that process to me was more valuable than anything and everything I ever got out of university. And I'm not saying university and college is not important or doesn't carry value. It really depends on what it is you're getting out of it, what you're taking and what you want to do with it. Because again, I found criminology interesting, but I felt like it was ultimately a waste of time. But my wife and I moved to California in 1998. In 1997, my quote-unquote cousin, he's not a blood relative, but my cousin and I made a decision to essentially create what we would call the Amazon.com of the golf club industry. And I believe this was supposed to be the major turning point in my life. I just believed it to my core that this was going to make me one of those dot-com millionaires. Back then, the internet, if you recall, it was all the rage. Dot-com businesses were popping up all over the place. And the craziest companies were raising all kinds of capital for the dumbest ideas. Like, I don't know if you remember pets.com. They raised so much money and they were a complete failure. They were a bust. You know, they just couldn't generate a profit. But, you know, I thought that we had a great idea. We really did. We had a great idea. We launched the business in 1998 and that's when we left Canada and moved to the U.S. We hired a CEO. We raised $9.5 million in venture capital funding from investors, mostly out of Northern California. And we were really on the path to be a publicly traded company. And again, I thought I was going to be one of those many so-called dot-com millionaires that you often hear about. But as luck would have it, this feels like deja vu today, but the stock market crashed in March of 2000. And that dream of becoming financially free just disappeared in one trading day. It was very disappointing. It was very depressing. So over the next year, we found ourselves laying off the 105 employees that we had and I was the third co-founder of the company, and I was coincidentally the third last to leave. I didn't shut the lights off, but I was the third last person to be there. But I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew for a fact I didn't want another job. I didn't want a J-O-B, and I didn't want to go back into corporate America. I still had that dream of financial and time freedom, and I knew I could do it. To just kind of segue into how this all became real estate-based, in the middle of 2003, I don't know how I got on this list, but I received an email from a guy named Robert G. Allen, famous author, very well known. He's one of the godfathers of nothing down real estate. And you could just look him up on Amazon. Yeah, I didn't know that name too, but I was going to say real quick before we move on from, what was the name of the company that you're moving on from? E-Club Buy? Was that the name of it? Yeah, E-Club Buy. Club as in like the golf club industry. Gotcha. I know you talked about flipping a property when you were 18 or were you doing any other type of real estate at this point in time? No, I had taken time off. I had been investing in real estate on and off over the years, but I had taken time off because I didn't want to rush into anything. Again, I didn't want a J-O-B. So I just wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So yeah, you keep moving on here. So you got something from Robert Allen, you're saying? Yeah. So I got this email and Robert Allen had created a company at the time called EWI. Actually, it was EMI, the Enlightened Millionaires Institute. And they ultimately renamed it the Enlightened Wealth Institute. But I received this email and he was putting on this three-day seminar in Orange County, California, where I live. And it was a free seminar. So I thought, well, hey, what the heck? I have the time on my hands. I have the ambition to learn and a desire to make my dream a reality. So I decided to attend this event. Attending that event, that decision literally changed my life. There were over 2,000 people who attended. About half of those people signed up for their upcoming boot camps to the tune of $15,000 to $35,000 per person. Having time on my hands and a credit card in my pocket, I too signed up over the next four months to attend these various boot camps that were peppered all around the country. Two major things came out of that. This was the turning point in my life. This was kind of like the whole new chapter of my life and how the business came to be. First, over the course of the next nine months, I created systems 
that allowed me to find and purchase 84 rental units from Florida to Michigan, all from my home here in Orange County, California, over 2,000 miles away. The second thing that happened was I launched this business to help other people get those exact same results that I was getting from the systems I created in California. They were coming to me saying, Marco, I see what you're doing. I need a mentor and a coach. And I said, no, I don't have the time to mentor or coach anybody, but I can help you invest and do the same thing I'm doing. That's the light bulb moment that went on. And that's how the business was created is because I identified a need and people were asking for that service and that value that I wanted to provide. And so to kind of wrap this up with a bow, my mission has been and is to this day and is also my company's mission to help 1 million people create wealth and passive income by putting them on the path to financial freedom with real estate because that's what I was doing. How did you have the money to go purchase 80 plus properties when you said you had a credit card to pay for the $35,000 course? Well, I wasn't living on credit cards. I actually had savings and I did have cash, but that is a brilliant question and a very intuitive question. There's two answers to that. Number one, back then in the markets I was investing in, we weren't in strong seller's markets. It was more of a buyer's market. So I was able to negotiate with some of the sellers that I was buying these properties from, and I was able to get them to agree to seller financing. So I didn't have to go out and necessarily get a mortgage on all of them. And second, I was able to put less down, like 5% down or 10% down instead of the standard 20 or 25% down as a down payment. So I was able to negotiate terms and that minimized the amount of investment capital that I needed on the front end. So that was one way. The second way is, if you recall, back then, we made jokes about this, it was pretty easy to get mortgage financing. In fact, we used to joke that there were, you remember, there were no income, like stated income loans, and then they ultimately came out with NINA loans, like no income, no assets, and then ultimately they came out with what we called ninja loans, no income, no asset, no job. <laughs> the joke was if you could fog up a mirror, you could get qualified for financing. So it was pretty easy to get financing. The fact that I could negotiate on the deal, lower my down payment, and get financing made it much easier to buy investment properties back then from a financing perspective than it is today. I think most people would think like after e-club buy or whatever that you would not have any money left if you were a co-founder in that business because you kind of put it all in there. But it sounds like you still had substantial money at least to start doing these real estate investments. Even if it's only 5%, you still was talking about 85 plus properties. No, that wasn't the case at all. I was a co-founder. I was paid well as the chief technology officer of the company. I had a fair amount put away in savings. Plus, I had some rental properties and I was okay. I wasn't suffering. It's not like I was unemployment. In fact, I don't think I've ever claimed unemployment. So I had savings. I was comfortable. I wasn't desperate. I wasn't in need of a job and I wasn't even looking for a job. I was just sitting back. My wife was working because you know she wanted to work. She got a great job at another company. We had income coming in and we had savings. So it's not like we were desperate in any way, shape or form. It's just, I just didn't want to rush into anything. It makes sense. But you understand from my perspective, I feel like you're closing down a company and you're a co-founder. I think most people think that they used a lot of their money on it. But especially if you have got a wife that has a good job and you've always been saving your money and you're still dabbling in real estate on the side. So you still had maybe cash flow from that. So it seems like even though it's something someone could learn right now, right? If they have their own company, you can still have these real estate investment properties on the side that potentially that if your company fails or one or the other fails, you still have the other one. You don't have just the one stream of income, which is your paycheck. Well, here's an education point and a takeaway for your listeners. If you have a business, if you're an entrepreneur, 
a solopreneur or you have an existing business and you're generating profit, it's not an either or situation where you have a business or you invest in real estate. You want both. And the beautiful thing about actually being able to do both is you can run a business, earn an income so you can pay your living expenses and make a living. But the profits from your business, you take some or maybe all, but you take as much as you can from that and talk to your tax advisor about this because everybody's got a different personal situation. But the goal, the idea is to take that profit and convert that into investments. You take that profit and you invest it into income producing real estate. Now you have a hard asset that's an inflation hedge that generates monthly and annual income cash flow and creates wealth through equity growth over time. So you want a business and you want your business to make as much money as it possibly can because what you want to do is you want to take profit from that business, whatever's left over, and funnel that over into building a real estate portfolio and you want to do that as fast as you can. We take for granted that the apps that we use can connect and stay connected over the internet. Domain name systems, aka DNS, makes that possible and are one of the most critical pieces of app infrastructure. Architecturing and managing reliable global DNS infrastructure is tough, especially when you consider the growing number of deployment options and distributed architectures. For example, app services can run anywhere on any cloud, stack, or platform. And while developers are great for helping develop an app, well, they're usually not DNS infrastructure experts. F5 cloud services have made app delivery and security so simple that anyone can set it up. And not only that, you can set up F5 cloud services fast. When you're on a small team, you need services that enable you to be agile and move fast and with confidence. F5 cloud services expertise as a service lets you achieve worry-free DNS infrastructure in minutes. The F5 delivers DNS tech with SaaS. It's designed for app developers and DevOps teams who want to move incredibly fast. Give your apps the DNS infrastructure they deserve with just a few clicks or API calls so that you and your team can spend more time innovating. F5 has 20 years of experience in the app services and they know what you need in order to implement a great performing app. So if you have an app or you're about to get started on one and you want to help support our show, well, now's a great time to start F5 Cloud Services because F5 is offering a free trial for our listeners. Just visit f5.com forward slash millionaire. That's f5.com forward slash millionaire. In today's world, every company needs more than a simple website. Customers expect personalized, feature-rich experiences. But developing a website that can compete requires time, energy, and of course, the ability to write code. Well, at least it used to, before Bubble. Bubble introduces a new way to build a web application. It's a no-code point-and-click programming tool. Build on Bubble and join over 300,000 entrepreneurs like yourself who are now free to focus on growing their business and not struggling to maintain a website. Bubble is the visual programming and cloud platform that empowers founders to build visually and without code. Get started today by signing up for a free account. And whenever you're ready to launch, Bubble is giving all of our listeners a 40% discount for your first three months by using this secret link, bubble.io forward slash millionaire. That's right, 40% off your first three months by going to bubble.io forward slash millionaire. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bubble platform, well, go check out my interview with the founder 
on episode 170. Is 2004 your big hit year of like when you're starting to do this and you're like, hey, I'm going to go all into doing this real estate stuff and helping other people? Yeah. January 2004 was the turning point. That's what I call officially the launch of our business, Norada Real Estate. Back then it was just me. I was a solopreneur and I was hustling and I was looking at real estate, investing in real estate and helping a small number of clients, however many I could take on based on time back then. But I was putting the systems in place to essentially do exactly what we do today. Today is on a much larger scale and it's certainly more refined and better articulated than it was back in 2004. It was the same business. It was essentially the same business. In fact, what's kind of interesting is when I first started helping investors, I wasn't licensed at the time as a real estate brokerage. And so I was actually charging them a fee for my services, my time and finding the deals and bringing it to them. But then when I could, I flipped that model around and then it was free to the client, to the investor. I was helping them and providing value at no cost to them because now I was getting compensation from the other end of the transaction. Was that way more profitable doing it that way versus the first way? It was profitable in the sense that I was able to attract more, more clients because when I can tell them, these are all the things I'm going to be able to do for you and the value I can provide. And oh, by the way, there's no cost to you now or ever. They're going to say, well, why wouldn't I use you? And I'm going to say, you're right. Why wouldn't you want to use us? <laughs> so even from 2004 up till today, the real estate market's been great and only gone up, right? Well, no, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, those years, many markets around the country suffered. You know, I was joking, Marco. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I get very passionate about this. <laughs> My wife says I have to warn her whenever I tell a joke, so I'll warn you next time. Really? Yes. Put, put up the flag? <laughs> I'm sorry about that. No, it's all good. I mean, that's what I'm trying to figure out here is even starting 2004, going in it for three years, basically, it sounds like everything was up and up. And I'm trying to figure out how much staff you had. What was your high point before, obviously, a major dip in the economy and in the housing market? Well, when 2008-ish rolled around, essentially they are calling the year of the Great Recession because that actually started in 2006. And I saw the writing on the wall when lenders were starting to pull their loan programs. But we really didn't feel the impact of that until 2007. And it was in 2007 that I laid off my staff, which was only two or three people at the time. I think it was two administrative staff and then one salesperson and ultimately scaled it back to the point where it was, again, just myself. Well, real quick before we jump back in there, because we're just jumping over a lot here, I'm feeling like how much money were you actually making up till the Great Recession? Probably up until before 2008, we were probably doing... I'm going to say about 80 transactions a year. So it's a lot, but still, you know, not huge number. But even on that, I mean, so like net profit, were you making a couple hundred K a year with your company up till that point? Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. We were profitable, but keep in mind, like I said, I cut back on staff heavily. I mean, across the board. I know. So that's up to the recession. That's why I'm trying to get to so people understand that, especially is it something similar might happen, right? Or in the future, it's going to happen eventually. So we just want to see how you were able to survive it because there were so many real estate companies that didn't, right? Yeah. The simple answer to that question is I tightened up across the board. And one of the biggest expenses in business is staff, unfortunately, for them. You had your own office, I imagine, with all the staff coming there as well? Correct. Did you close up that shop and go back home since you were a one-man shop again? 
I just want to walk through in details. We understand you cut the salaries or whatever, but I want to just know what other drastic measures, if this is the lowest point in your business life, what else happened here? Yes. Ultimately, I did move back to my home office. The whole idea was to run lean. A lot of businesses failed. A lot of quote unquote competitors that I had back then, they were gone. Like 95% of them were gone because they just couldn't generate any business and or they were just running too rich. And to reemphasize, you were just getting paid on commission at this point too. Correct. Okay. But how many side rental properties did you have in your own name for this generating revenue, if you will? Well, from that 84 that I had, and this could be something, a short conversation we could have because it's really strategic. When I saw the writing on the wall in 2006, did you ever see the movie, The Big Short? Yeah. Okay. So remember that moment when he's in the strip club talking to the stripper and he's not there because he wants to be at a strip club. He just wants to get information from you know the stripper. And Yeah. Me too, Marco. <laughs> yeah. But that moment where he basically heard that woman, that stripper say, yeah, I've got four houses and this and that and that. And then, oh, oh, oh by the way, I almost forgot. I also have, you know, these two other condos. And the guy's like baffled. He's like, oh my God, we have a huge problem bigger than I ever thought. And that moment in time was the exact same thing that happened to me in 2006. I started unloading a lot of that inventory because I knew that we were going to be coming into hard times and that I couldn't hold on to that portfolio. So I was trying to liquidate my hard asset into liquid capital and either sit on the sidelines with cash and I repurposed it. I put it into other things and, you know, kept some cash on the side. Long story short, I didn't hold on to the entire portfolio. Starting in 2006, I started to unwind it. Yeah, but so you started unwinding it and you're sorry, it sounded like you just kind of stopped there. It's like your capital, you're saying you're taking it, but most real estate investors just keep putting it in real estate. So did you just take that money out, get tax at it and put it in your personal account? And like how many properties did you sell? I sold most of the portfolio and I put some of it in cash. I put some of it in the money market. I put some of it in just precious metals. I put some of it back into the business just to cover some debts that I had at the time, business debt. I just waited it out. Most of it was, so how many properties did you have left over before everything tanked? How many did I keep? Yeah. Oh, probably 10. Okay. So you kept 10 out of the 80 or so, let's just say 80, make it easy. Because we're kind of talking about two separate businesses because that first year, this is all for your own portfolio, but now the separate company is where you make money on commission on selling the houses, right? With referrals. Is that correct? Just so everyone's clear? Yeah, that's the business. Right. But if you would have kept all these properties, you would have been screwed. Would you not have? I mean, like, I would imagine that that's what happened to most people. No, two different things, which I'll touch on because you're bringing up a good point. I wouldn't have been screwed. They were all positive cash flow, assuming that everything was running and humming along nicely. But I made the comment a few minutes ago that I had purchased a lot of these properties in rougher neighborhoods, what I'll call C and to borderline D class neighborhoods. So that's about as bad as it gets in case anyone's wondering. Yeah. So, you know, you go from A through D and then a, a, F is an absolute war zone, but you know, you never want to buy in D's because I'll call that a war zone. C's are very low in income areas. Yeah. I've only heard A through C to be honest, like when I'm talking commercial real estate at all, but again, I guess D would be. D's a war zone. So I, unfortunately, not knowing any better lesson learned, and this is something we prevent our investor clients from doing is investing in rough areas, very distressed areas, what I'll call C, C minus neighborhoods. 
you know, we do have some C-plus neighborhood properties because investors want them. The numbers on paper look great as far as a cash-on-cash cash return go, but don't expect much, if any, appreciation from those properties. That's where I was focused. But the other unspoken problem that you have when you are dealing with low-income demographic, there are all kinds of problems that come along with that baggage, if you will, and it gives you sleepless nights and a lot of brain damage, whether for you and or your property manager. And one of those things is that they are very transitional at the best of times. They go from job to job. They don't make a high income. They're late on rent. Sometimes they miss rent. So you always have this catch up that you're dealing with when it comes to that demographic often, not always often. But when you are in rough times, in recessionary times, that problem is exasperated. I was already suffering from that problem with problem tenants, low income tenants, and I knew it was going to get worse. So it wasn't that I didn't have positive cash flow from my portfolio. It was there, but that's assuming that things are humming along quite well, meaning I was maintaining a 90% occupancy and they were paying their rent every month, late or not, but paying every month. What I didn't want to happen, and that's exactly the road I was going down, is I didn't want to be in a situation where my challenging tenants became problem tenants to a large degree. And that was the main reason. It's not that it wasn't cash flow positive. I just figured that I should liquidate my assets, those that real estate, and then go back into the market with B-plus neighborhood, better quality product, better quality real estate investments. So you took it out and still put it in real estate. You just didn't have it in the bad markets. Yes, but I didn't do it right away. I waited until after the quote unquote great recession. Okay, but then I'm saying you probably basically summarized my point exactly is that if you would have kept that money out, okay, it's all positive cash flow. We understand that. But if you got a single family home and they're not paying money, then you're in very negative cash flow, right? On an individual property basis. So that's what I'm saying is if you wouldn't have done that and say just a quarter of your properties, I mean, that happened and you owned all these properties with your personal assets versus your real estate business that you make commission on, it sounds like you wouldn't have made it through, to be honest. I mean, I don't see how... Right. Do you not see that? It could have been exactly pretty nasty. Yeah. That's what happened to most people, right? That was what kind of when I was coming out of school was like, I learned from all that, all those people like, okay, it all sounded like all the numbers work well in Excel if you put them in there. But what really happens when they stop paying rent? And that's again, when you're talking about duplexes or triplexes or four like this is why, honestly, at the end of the day, when you're doing a single family house, there's an issue with the renters. If like that one family stops paying, then we have an issue. But at least if you have two, you're diversifying your risk. That's all we're doing here is talking about like risk versus reward, right? Yeah, well, that's all true. But there's a bigger reason why so many people fell on their face and got caught with their shorts down when the housing market crashed. That's a strong word. When the economy crashed and the housing market followed suit, it wasn't so much because people were investing in bad neighborhoods. In fact, most of the so-called investors, and I say investors in, with air quotes, they were really speculators, not investors. The reason there were so many problems is because those so-called real estate investors we're not investing for cash flow. They didn't have cash flow. And in many cases, they didn't even have tenants. What they were doing is they were purchasing properties on speculation, a lot of it new construction, because what they were doing is they were buying these properties, waiting for the properties to be built, and then flipping them, essentially flipping them to the next person. They never intended to keep it as a long-term rental where they had a tenant and they had positive cash flow. They didn't even think about the cash flow part of it because it didn't come into the equation. They just wanted to build, have it appreciate, because the real estate markets all around the country were appreciating pretty much across the board. And their idea was to flip the properties in three, six, 12 months. And this was a big, big problem in Southwest Florida, Phoenix, Las Vegas, Southern California, the Inland Empire of California. I mean, those areas were like just ground zero for housing market problems. 
And again, the support for anyone's listening. So this happens again. Yeah. So you made a point too, because like a lot of those people, they're just doing it based on appreciation. 100%. They weren't even looking at the cash flow. So at least you were still looking at the cash flow, but there is a risk that people stop paying because they don't have a job or whatever. But those other people, some of them were investing and they even had negative cash flow. They didn't care if the mortgage was higher than the rent coming in because they're like, oh, well, in six months, I'll be able to flip it. So going back to what you're saying, at least at the very least, you had positive cash flow based on the people having jobs. And I guess you figured out with the submarkets and trying to diversify this, it sounds like you're strategic and smart enough to figure out this personally. So both your personal assets and your business were able to survive over, I guess, those three or four year period, right? Right. Yeah. And then that's exactly what we teach people today is invest in areas that will show that have growth and stability and will do well for you over the long term from an appreciation perspective, but don't buy based on that. Don't lead with appreciation. Make sure you have positive cash flow because again, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Having cash flow in a property is the glue that holds your deal together. So you'll have passive income from it monthly and annually. That's great. It's spendable cash. But year after year after year, you're going to see your equity grow. So when you have that cash flow and equity growth, it then it's a get rich slow investment that works almost all the time. Perfectly said. Because yeah, so your primary goal, again, if anyone's looking at real estate investments, like you're saying, the cash flow, the second is, okay, let's just pretend it doesn't appreciate. But at the end of the day, you're hoping it does. Just don't base you buying it based on appreciation. And the third reason really why, again, we don't have enough time to even get into all this stuff is really for tax reasons, right? There's different ways, a lot of tax structures on why you can shelter your income or do different things. There's multiple reasons, but just make sure, again, I think Marco's pointed out that the primary driver of you buying it is the actual money being produced by the property. So yeah, I'm glad we dived into all that because I think that's helpful. You know, if people don't have much of a real estate investing background or whatever, I think they get a good feel of how you're able to survive that. So why don't we talk about really maybe these last seven or eight years coming out of it, how you're able to grow your company and just give us a brief overview if you don't mind. Yeah. So that's a great question. Anybody who's a business owner and entrepreneur, they want to do a couple things. They want to grow their business. They want to increase their profits. They want to obviously keep expenses under control and ultimately create time freedom for themselves. Otherwise, why build a business if you're going to be a slave to it, right? So some of the biggest lessons I've learned in terms of growing the business was to, this is something I've always suffered with, but is essentially learning how to create systems and delegating things that you're doing that you feel that you're the best person for that job or only you can do it. I suffer with this. I mean, it's a bit of a control freak thing and an OCD thing, but the only way you can scale is to duplicate yourself or to put systems in place where you can either automate tasks or you can create systems where you can delegate tasks. And that usually means whether if it's not technology, then it's people. And those are the people who can take over the things that you are doing as a solopreneur. So you've got to be able to delegate and you've got to be able to automate and you've got to be able to create systems because if you can't do those things, you'll never be able to grow or scale a business. And it seems like you've been able to do that over time. It goes back to even earlier in our conversation, we we're talking about writing blog articles or whatever. It's just getting started. Most people end up doing it, but if you don't outsource it, then you're never going to be able to keep growing. So you stayed with this whole commission structure these last eight or nine years, right? To keep growing the business. Can you just kind of take us maybe by year by year quickly, or just tell us what the growth was coming out of the recession? We hit bottom in roughly 2012. I mean, most real estate markets hit 2012, but as a whole, people started coming out of the woodwork and started buying quite rapidly, actually, in 2012. It started in 2010, but 2012 is where we saw a significant bounce off the bottom and people were actively buying again, whether it be first homes, second homes, 
people upgrading from an existing home to a, something bigger and investors coming out of the woodwork. And that's when we started to see the company's growth kick into gear again. I don't remember specific numbers, but I do know that we probably had triple digit growth percentage wise in 2015 and 2016 to 2017. So the Inc. 5000 list was really the growth from 2015 to 2018. That was probably our biggest year. And this may be the biggest year yet, 2020. Well, 2019 and 2020. I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> I had a nugget. I was just wondering, like, growing your brand and whatnot, because I never see your name. I've always seen, I guess, your podcast to cover whatnot. I mean, I don't see a personal brand, but how you were able to actually grow this. I mean, it sounds like part of it's through the podcast, part of it was through SEO, but was your focus on just growing your email list or whatever to get properties out to make this revenue grow? Yeah, you're kind of hitting a bit of a sore spot with me because within the industry, if you're looking at the real estate investors industry, we have a pretty big recognizable brand name. But if you don't live in that industry or if you don't work within the industry or if you're not thinking about real estate investing and subscribing to newsletters and reading magazines and this and that, you won't come across our name, obviously. But what that tells me as a business owner and as a marketer, and this is true for any business owner listening to this, if people are telling you, hey, I've never heard of you before, or you sound like you've got a great business, but maybe you're not that big, or maybe you're really small. Well, that just tells you that you're not really getting your message out, whether it's through personal branding or marketing your business or reaching your audience, your target demographic through pay-per-click advertising, through social media, through SEO, whatever it may be, you're not doing enough of it. And really with marketing, you could never be doing enough of it, if that makes any sense. You could always be doing more. No, I think it does. And I mean, don't take that as a slight coming from me. It's just- No, no. Yeah, but I'm saying I don't think most of the people listening now, like if I was in real estate forums and stuff, then that's your target market, right? So they probably notice that. And it's funny, whenever I like start hearing successful real estate companies, and like you were saying, the $25,000 course, there's a lot of guys who act like they're real estate gurus who want to self-promote. And I just usually kind of see that from a residential perspective with this type of investment property. So I was curious how you're able to grow it without having that faced with your company, right? I recognize the name, right? We talked about the name or whatever, but there's no Nothing that really stands out to me of how you were able to track this many leads to come into your properties and ultimately you make commission off of them. Well, there's a whole lot more I could be doing. Right now, we have a big list. We nurture that list with a weekly newsletter. We have organic traffic come in. We have referrals. And then the podcast, the Passive Real Estate Investing Podcast, we get leads from that because we're constantly educating people. That's a lot. But could I be doing a lot more? Absolutely. Could I be generating more revenue for the company? Yeah, absolutely. Have I been? No. And that's where it goes back to the beginning of the conversation. Right now, there's only one pillar of income or revenue being generated, and that's just the sale of those investment properties to our clients. That's at the end of that large spectrum. So my goal this year, and any business owner listening to this can do this too, is to kind of start creating these additional pillars of revenue, You know, be it an online course for me, be it group mentoring or group coaching program for our clients, maybe a mastermind group like kind of a high-end inner circle type of mastermind, which is a top-tier product. Those are additional revenue sources that I could put together. It just requires time and dedication and some work. Are you happy right now? Oh, yeah, of course I'm happy. I'm, you know, we're working towards fulfilling that mission I was telling you about helping a million people create wealth and passive income. I could do more and I could do it faster if I had these other tools in place. Yeah, but all that matters really at the end of the day is are you happy, right? I mean, personally, you say, of course, but the only thing I know is like our conversation now, right? So all of us as business owners, what I'm trying to put in perspective, we all trust me want to do more. Like I want to do more. <laughs> Person listening wants to do more. 
But it has to reach a point where we're like, okay, we're still happy. Like you could work all till midnight tonight, right? And just keep doing this stuff. But it seems like you've been smart about generating wealth and being able to do this where you still have the opportunity to go home early if you want. And I think the ideal anyone mindset, anyone listening, we want to keep growing and make it bigger. But even though you keep saying you're only making money through just this commission structure, and maybe you're looking at these other opportunities to make more money through the, your brand in order real estate investments, you're still making money, it sounds like, from your personal investments in real estate too, right? So that's almost a separate business that we haven't touched on a little bit, but at least that's how you're diversifying personally for your money. Yeah. And, you know, just to touch on your question, when anybody asks me, you know, are you happy? Well, this is the way I interpret that question. I'm doing what I love and I love what I do. I don't look at work as work. To me, this is play. I've got my health, my family, my family's healthy. We're not suffering in any way. And so when you look at that, you know, when you step back and you look at the forest, not just the tree, you could say, yeah, I'm happy. You know, I'm doing what I love. And you don't have the J-O-B that you're talking about that you dread most. Right. And most people do. <laughs> At the end of the day, we all want to get bigger and whatnot. But again, just perspective as far as being happy where you've gotten so far, because I really appreciate you being able to the opportunity of you talking about it, because I would never have known, again, just from coming to your website, like you even talked about that you're in the Inc. 5000 and whatnot. You can't always tell from the outside how well someone's doing or not doing. And that's, again, why we like to go through a story with different types of entrepreneurs and hear how you got here. So. Before we close here, do you have any words of wisdom or last pieces of advice for anyone who's listening here? Yeah, here's a little one, but could be a big one for someone, depending on who's listening and where they are with their business. And I actually paid $35,000 for some pieces of advice. This is one of them. So I'm giving a $35,000 nugget of information here. It sounds very basic and obvious, but you got to actually digest it and sit back and think about it. Every business has two parts. They have the inside reality and the outside perception. You can have a great outside perception and people think you're an amazing company with a great brand and you're doing great, but your inside reality is suffering, shambles, not functioning. The opposite could be true. You could have an inside reality that is you know, stellar. You could have the best product or service in the world, but if you don't have the outside perception to match that, nobody's ever going to know that you're the best product or service out there. You've got to be focused on those two parts of your business and make sure that you know they're in alignment with each other. Well, thank you for giving that $35,000 wisdom. I guess someone can email you and maybe send you a check as well. <laughs> no, it's all free advice, man. It's all free. Well, what happens if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the podcast? Is there a best way for them to reach you? Yeah, we have two websites and everything that anybody would ever want, including contact information is there. So there's our main website we talked about before, you know, Norada, realestate.com. That's where we post properties and free info. And then the sister website is the home of the podcast which we also talked about, and that's PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. And the show is called Passive Real Estate Investing too. All right, Marco. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. This has been an absolute blast, Austin. I appreciate you taking the time and thank you for inviting me on. Hey there, Millionaire Interviews listener. Even though you're probably alone right now while listening to this podcast, know that at this very second, you're actually listening with thousands of other listeners all around the globe. And if you'd like to connect with those listeners all around the globe, or maybe you want to ask one of our guests a question about their episode, well, then check out our Facebook group. Just search for Millionaire Interviews Podcast. Hasta luego, baby.